Hey gang, this is Full Contact Cannabis Podcast, and I'm sitting down here with Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media, and we are speaking with Jesse Neeson, uh, who is in what state this morning? I'm back in San Antonio, Texas today. All right, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Is that, so, uh, is that where you live, Jesse? I live on the uh, uh, nonstop cannabis road trip hemp highway for like over six years so i'm from northern california but uh i've been non-stop traveling for over six years welcome to the club yeah <laughs> i'm spending most of my time in san antonio since last september i'll be here for a few more months launching some retail here before i start doing it again elsewhere we should mention real quick exotic canopy solutions which is the company that you're out there on the road representing right Hundred uh, percent. Exotic Canopy Solutions is uh, the main focus in life. We've acquired the Hempress Three genetic, Hempress3.com. So promoting our genetic and getting Hempress Three growing with more good growers and developing new cultivars is really my driving force. All right, way cool. We have multiple questions to ask you. I'm and ready. The, and the first one is the nose. <laughs> You're, I'm looking at your LinkedIn site, right? Which is very yeah. cool. You got a lot of followers. We got a lot of people that follow us both. But it says Exotic Cannabis Solutions, two years, seven months. And then it says The Nose. So right. um, I'll explain The Nose, my title of The Nose. Basically, in the past year, last spring, my life partner and business partner, Beth Jones, kind of took over the main leadership role as the manager of our company and assuming most of the executive function. So I fully support her. I'm fully involved, but I'm out developing new business, uh, part of what I'm doing in Texas and across the country. In doing that, uh, the past decade, you know, since the 90s, um, I'm from Northern California and, you know, everyone's after the good stuff, you know, what is the good stuff and how can you tell? I think that there's a good case to be made for even to this very day, the nose, the human face, uh, is the best way to determine quality. Unfortunately, it's, you know, and there's some new certification programs coming out, I think may change this, but it's been something that's very difficult to teach other people. You know, it takes a decade to develop your palate as a wine sommelier, but to go around and make financial decisions for buying big blocks of cannabis flour and making money on it, not losing all your money because it turns to dust because it didn't look or smell right. That's what I mean by the nose. That is an awesome thing because there's something I have been wanting to talk about for a while. And I've been talking about it for a couple of years and people just kind of look at me and scratch their head. We do not have qualified buyers in the cannabis industry. Not so much in high THC, but in high CBD cannabis. I don't know if there's that many people that are qualified to go and check out 5, 10, 15,000 pounds of cannabis and be able to give the person both selling and the person buying a really, really good idea of what they got. Yeah, even one pound or one ounce or a hundred pounds, it's all, it all matters. And I mean, any buyer qualifies if they got the money to pay, but are you going to ever see them again? Is it well, going to be slow or are they going to come back fast with more money than they thought excited to buy again? And that's well, the difference that the nose makes. Well, th what I'm saying, though, is not only the nose, but it's all of it. I mean, I've brokered a few deals, and it is extremely hard to go in and evaluate 10,000 pounds. A hundred percent. Yeah, the, those kind of, you know, I, I don't I don't deal on quite that scale. I do deal a lot in the hundred to a thousand plus pounds, but over a thousand pounds of smokable flour becomes a nightmare for the QC, like you're saying. No, though this was back, back biomass days. Bio, uh, yeah, biomass I don't know. I don't know bio. anybody selling buying twenty thousand pound lots of of bio too much anymore. No, but the thing about it is, is that it's such. If you are buying for, let's say, a a store, uh, a company that has 10, 12, 13 stores, have being able to come in there. And be able to evaluate a huge amount is a big difference because if the buyer gets it, and this happens all the time, it was a lot drier when they independently tested. Somehow the percentage of CBD or THC <laughs> went down. I do not know how that happens. 
somehow it's a completely different product when it shows up and that happens way too much. When do you think that, like you said, the sommelier, which is excellent. I mean, it really, really is. When do you think there's going to be a group of professionals who be able to, instead of having to do all these other jobs to be able to make a living, are going to be able to make a living as a buyer? Like, because that tobacco has it. To be honest, um, there are buyers and they have their wads of paper of cash and they have a good nose. And, and so now as, as a professional thing where you could look on a title on LinkedIn, I, I don't really... I don't hire myself out for that. I'm too busy. But most of the most of the buyers that have that skill, that's what they're doing. They're busy flipping their money, you know, making good. The, a but, smart investor makes their money when they buy. No, no, but th those are merchants. What I'm talking about is like what exists in tobacco to where if you go to an auction, there are people whose whole job is to walk through a lot full of warehouse of different types of tobacco and be able to yeah. pretty closely say, okay, this couple hundred pounds is worth this. And yeah, and the, I, think we're, I think we're rapidly going there and that's been kind of organically developing. Now you've got like the Gangier program, you got the Tricome Institute, you know, two different uh, certification programs to kind of give you a certified nose. Now I haven't worked with enough of those certified individuals in the market to see if their nose is an asset or a liability, you know? So that's always the case. And, and it's, all, it's not only that, but it, the market changes and you have to adapt your decision-making ability with your nose and all other tools you have available. Um, as the market changes, you got to, it's a moving target. So right now you're, you are a cannabis professional. You're making your money basically by your nose by going out there and find a product that you can buy for this price and then be able to sell it for this price and have a margin that it can it pays your bills that, that is a big piece of what i'm doing and the reason i got kind of back into this just to give you some background you know i'm 46 years old i'm from northern california foothills rough and ready california near grass valley nevada city up in nevada county which is uh, a place where a lot of hippies and Vietnam vets went to in the 70s to kind of bug out and grow uh, marijuana. And so a lot of my good friends growing up, you know, and their parents are these people. Um, and so my whole life, I've been around it. In the, in the early 90s, I started growing and growing under the black camp helicopters and fearful of 25 years in prison for any shred of, of marijuana. You know, so uh, that's how I grew up. And, um, and it was very illegal. I never really spoke to anyone outside of the kind of inner circles about it until uh, later, much later on. It went legal in California in 1996. I have a lot of friends that dove in immediately, you know, been pretty prominent ever since. But I started, uh, you know, growing myself medically under Prop 215 uh, off and on during those times. I got pretty heavy in 2010, 2011. And that's when I first started selling to dispensaries in California under Prop 215. And I got real good at it real quick and started kind of dominating the shelf space in some dispensaries in Northern California. So you got real good at what? Well, I've always loved the plant. I've always loved smoking. In, the, in 1995, I was living in Colorado Springs, Colorado, before any legalization. And that was the first year I had what I consider perfect runs. I had my first perfect run indoor. I was growing purple indica seeds from Northern California and purple indica seeds from New York. And I grew them indoors in Colorado. And I had perfect runs where, you know, if you start a, a grade in school with a hundred percent and you finish with a hundred percent, that's what I'm talking about. I had, I had took no hits on the health of the plant well, through the finish line. When you said you start dominating the shells, was that stuff you grew or was that stuff that you brokered for real good growers? Both and then some. So uh, there's no way there's no way for one grower to grow enough. To, you know, you're gonna spend all the time growing your stuff and then market and sell it, and then what? Now the buyers want more the same day, the next day, the next week. The ne it's a huge demand, and I think that's what a lot of people in hemp and even commercial cannabis, a lot of the corporate people, I don't know if it's able to be seen as much 
outside of California and Northern California, but there are millions and millions and millions of dollars cash pouring into the state every day shopping for flour. So that was the first time we were seeing it in a regulated market. And I was able to participate in the regulated market. And, you know, I, I had over 80% of the shelf space was flour I sourced. That was all from not just myself, only I would only grow one or two kinds, you know, but most of at that time, most of my stuff was premium. I'd get a lot more money for it elsewhere. But what I did at that time, I really found that the two different markets, there's the top shelf market. And I would bring down these pounds that looked like they came out of an alien spaceship, looked like they were just covered in cocaine. And they'd be like, wow, that's amazing. We'll take one, you know, on consignment. And I'm like, what? You know, I can't make any money selling one pound on consignment. And so I started bringing them what at that time, all my friends in the foothills considered their trash. They would never even show anybody their B quality material. It was only the best of the best that the growers put out. Everything else they set aside in trash bags and everybody had a friend who would make hash and everybody had a year or two or three. They're all waiting on their hash guy to make hash with all their trash. So back then I started collecting up all this trash and I'd bring it to the dispensary and sell it for 75, 150, 300, 500 a pound. And I'd split that money directly in half with the grower who was getting nothing as it's out there turning to dust. So this little, I'll give you half whatever I get, I would have started praising their B quality buds, bring it down to the city and sell that. And we would price it by like five, 10, 15, 20, $25 eights. And it was amazing because the volume went through the roof on this low quality material. People like ants would just walk to the club with 20 bucks and get a sack and go home and come back every single day. And that was a big learning lesson because I'm a big connoisseur and I love the top shelf, but there's really two, there's two markets. There's the tip top shelf that people can afford it. And there's the economy where they're going to buy whatever they can afford, but price is really the driving thing. So it's like the race to the bottom versus the race to the top shelf. What made you want to, to get out of high THC and get in high CBD? That's another good question, Mr. Jarbo. I would say that that would be number one, you know, growing up in the camp era, I kind of had baked into me the paranoia of law enforcement. And so it took me a long time to uh, over a decade to feel comfortable uh, with the legalization. Um, but I began uh, on some property in Northern California, 141 acres growing wreck in like 2014, 2015, 16, and I kept expanding. 2017 was a transitional year in California where they had passed Prop 64 and it went into effect January 1st, 2018. So 2017 was this transitional year and in the laws they had written that the licensed cultivation canopy square footage was predicated on previous grow history. Basically, you, you wanted to have a Google map showing that you were already growing uh, on this space on the property in order to be eligible to have that space licensed when the licensing became available. So I, I, went, I went big in 2017 and I got busted for what they said was 8,000 cannabis plants in 2017. You know, that uh, further eroded my trust in uh, the government because my attorneys, which were the top attorneys in California commercial cannabis, maintained I was in strict compliance with the law. They came on with no warrant, cut down all my plants, put it on the newspaper, put me in jail. I bailed out the same day for a thousand bucks. They never filed anything because they had no warrant. It was actually an illegal cut down. But uh, that discouraged me quite heavily. Uh, then following year in 2018, I was a part of a um, uh, 196 acre hemp grow in California. We got busted on that grow as well, despite DOJ, DEA approval, uh, MOU, all that. The, the Merced Sheriff came in, uh, busted us, put it on the news, and claimed that the crop tested at 2.27% THC and called it marijuana, seven times the legal limit uh, on the news. And uh, that was, you know, ever since those incidences, I've become very hardcore documented compliance oriented, you know, so fast forward a little further, uh, 2018, 2019, I was in commercial cannabis as a licensed distributor working with Grapefruit Boulevard, which is a publicly traded company. It's owned by uh, Brad and Dan Urist. Uh, my partner, Beth and I 
sold all types of commercial cannabis. Our first deal was 3,000 pounds of cannabis flour that we sold. And my commission on that was $2,500 on 3,000 pounds. And the reason I only, only reason I only made 2,500 is because that's how thin the margins had to be. And we had to pay 70 cents of every dollar the distro made in tax. And we also had to pay federal income tax on yeah, 280. Well, we had to pay, but as an employee under a distro, I paid federal income tax selling marijuana. Yeah. Go, go figure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 280. So, yeah. they, they, they get you coming and going. And, and so it was novelty and it was fun, but it's very difficult to be profitable. And, you, you know, I love this plant and I don't like all the weights around my ankles. So, the lightweight regulation and the absence of garbage tax in hemp flour, 2018 or so, um, maybe the end of 2018, early 2019. So just like three years ago, uh, Brad Urist of Grapefruit Boulevard, we were on a, a conference call and uh, we were talking about the cannabis market and deals. And Brad said, man, this smokable hemp flour is hot right now. And I said, smokable hemp? And I said, who the F is going to want to smoke rope? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, it was a foreign concept to me. And that was just three years ago. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me that my life's completely transitioned. I'm all about hemp flower and the quality of it and, and this race to the top shelf and, and moving the genetics forward so that we could have stuff in people's face and in their nose that they're like, yeah, that's it. When it's undistinguishable from the top shelf of what cannabis is producing, that's when we know we're getting into the realm of what's possible for smokable flour. The same reason you got into high CBD cannabis is the same reason I got into high CBD cannabis. You once you get in there and you see with all the compliance costs and stuff, you know what the margins are. And I was wondering, why do you still think to this day most people think that recreational medical marijuana is so lucrative? They don't, you know, it's a phenomenon, but it, people don't know what they don't know. And it's a very steep learning curve with this plant, not just in the license space, but before there was any license stuff, we've seen this phenomenon for decades. Everybody gets their big idea. They're going to grow it this way and they get to the math and they start figuring and they think they got it. You see it over and over again. People get these big ideas who can talk any sense into them until they go try it and see what happens. Now, at the same time, there are people making great money in cannabis. That's for sure. Those people aren't necessarily always advertising that fact. But, you know, you hear a lot about the failure, but in any business, there's mostly failure, you know. So uh, it's even worse with cannabis, I think, especially in California right now, it's getting a super squeeze. But yeah, I think, I think that it's part of human nature, but then it's compounded with this plant that's so complex that people think simply and think they're going to solve it. Uh, they don't understand the complexity. And that goes even orders of magnitude beyond when you add in the law and tax and then comp competition and big corporate strategy, all this stuff just layers on the complexity that, you know, for me, I think it's always, just always be testing. That's the only way you're going to know. The other thing I want to talk about that people don't realize, especially, and since I love this, that we both, you know, went from, you know, like I said, high, THC to high CBD is this whole thing that, uh, and, and I was naive about it, you know, uh, high THC, you know, pretty well is like the wild, wild west, but uh, the hemp business is, it really is. It's like Mad Max. I was naive. I thought hemp more family oriented, the, you know, farmer types, they're going to, you, you won't see the hustlers and all that that you saw in high THC. And it was just like the, total opposite. What was your experience? What was very illuminating was when the pandemic hit, how many people in the hemp industry suddenly were selling masks and sanitizer, you know? And so there's a just, you know, there's kind of people that are kind of like to sell, like to market, like to hustle, and they're going to move from one industry to another as things change, you know, but you're right. The hemp industry has been gnarly. I mean, I, I've got, I've got somebody that I uh, was working with a couple years ago, haven't seen him for a year and a half or so because he, you know, had his kneecaps removed with a shotgun, you know, so things get very real sometimes. And a lot of people don't understand, you know, they sit behind a keyboard, they 
forget that there's a hard reality to life and you can't go effing people uh, with no consequence forever. It's, it's not reality, you know? So you, I think a lot of people have learned hard lessons in him. You can say fucking on our podcast. Well, fucking right on. Thank you, sir. <laughs> but, uh, but that, <laughs> no, no, but it was, that was the thing it got me was, is that, uh, in fact, I think it's a joke now. How many people, you know, were, were brokering hemp two years ago that are now brokering crypto? Yeah, you see people migrate around, you know, but you got to learn, you know, life is, learning is fairly optional in, in life once you kind of get into it, you know, but I, I feel it's very important to continue learning. And that includes learning who the hell you're dealing with every time you're dealing with someone, you know, and there's a lot of people to deal with in this, on this planet, you know, and in this industry. So you got to be streetwise, you know, and there's a lot of people coming from all kinds of industries, just mixing and matching and hemp it's it's actually fascinating you, i i really enjoy it as well you got to learn to stick and move and stay away from people that are gonna take your time and money and i'm not without losses i i, I take lots of losses in learning <laughs> well one of the things that has amazed me about being in this industry especially on the hemp part was how many people that were good at real estate or good at this who immediately thought they were going to be good at cannabis. That's that big idea that people have. They're like, oh, I can do this. They think they can. I don't, you know, I guess you could say it's ego. You know, it's just people don't know what they don't know. And they definitely don't know what they don't know they don't even know. <laughs> so there's far more of that than they ever than we ever know like our our brains are like a hole in the sand and there's no way to fit the ocean into that hole in the sand people get the idea they got it figured out they're the next runner up on blow a million to learn you you don't have it all figured out yet you know so we've seen that on a huge scale in 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 california both with cannabis and hemp all right so now we we know that you're making a living with your nose and then you've got this hempers three which you know, we're talking about how <laughs> gnarly it is out there. Why is it with genetics and hemp companies or, or hemp genetic companies? And why are there so many friggin' bad ones? It's just like, it's, you know, I used to be in the consumer debt industry for like 13 years. And one of the things I did to distinguish myself, because in the debt consolidation world, it's a very shady business. There's a lot of shady people. So to distinguish myself, you know, after nearly a decade in that business, I had zero complaints from anyone online, you know, helping over 10,000 people, you know, whereas most of the people in the industry had all kinds of, you know, BBB complaints and that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's shady people in, in every industry. With the genetics, with Hempress 3 especially, I mentioned that in 2018, following the bust of 8,000 cannabis plants, which, is, which was a tremendous loss. I paid for the attorneys, I paid for everything, and I had an illegal cut down take my entire crop uh, as I followed the letter of the law. And uh, you know that was a little disturbing to me. So in 2018, doing the hemp, we had this MOU, you know, it was under the 2014 Farm Bill. It was prior to the 2018 Farm Bill signing. The data we were collecting, we were giving to the DOJ, the DEA, we were giving to uh, UC Davis, and they were using that data uh, to form the 2018 Farm Bill. The DOJ, the DEA, the Merced Sheriff came out for the final inspection that happened. They looked at our nutrient samples, SAP samples, our COAs, out of over 50 COAs that I saw, you know, most of them were all total T compliant. We had a few that were, I mean, like not very many, like a, less than a handful out of 50 plus that were 0.4 or 0.5 total THC. And those were our most recent tests, right? When we got busted, but they claimed that it was 2.32%. We never saw anything like that. We were doing our very best. And when we had the final inspection, we said, hey, when are we going to see you again? And the DOJ and the DEA said, hey, you won't see us again. This is our last visit. You guys are doing great. We wish everybody was doing it like you. The next day, we got an electronic search and seizure warrant and they came in and took the whole field and sickle cut it down, put it on the news, you know. So why did that happen? You know, I spent a little time, you know, debriefing the situation and what happened and why. And so there was the genetic, which was called um, Red Cross. So Red Cross was the genetic we were growing. And the, the genetic came from the investor group uh, through 
kind of a broker that I won't say his name, but he's been. But, 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 okay. One of my things is, is this was 2018, right? Yeah. The first crops of hemp that planted anywhere were in 2014. So how in the hell did all these different types of supposedly, you know, internally breeding stable seeds come about? It's a good question. And uh, I don't know the answer on the Red Cross genetic yeah, that we were what running. what I'm saying but... is you bought these genetics thinking that the person who sold it to him was of a high quality. And you really didn't know until you planted it. Yes. And, and, but at the same time, we also were very skeptical. I was working with big ads. But you still want 8,000 plants. Okay. Let's not get confused. The 8,000 plants, those were cannabis plants. Those were okay. all good. All right. Those all right. were all, all right. very all right. good genetics. Well, let, let's go to your first. That, that was, that was, that was 2017. Crop. That was 2017, the 8,000 plants. And that was cannabis. Yeah. Okay. That was, there was no, no fault of the genetics. That was purely the, the sheriff department okay. coming in illegally. But uh, in Merced County in 2018, when we did the 200 acres, I came in and it wasn't my decision to do the genetics. I was brought on and given a cut. Uh, I basically, it was my role to consult with them going into the ground. I didn't have a chance to have input on the genetics. I had well, how did you it. feel though, coming from a background where you had been doing this all of a sudden, and all of a sudden these guys are growing <laughs> a 10,000 times larger grow than what you were doing in now Northern California? And they just decided they were were going to put this genetic out. How do decisions like that get made? Well, I'm working with big, you know, row crop farmers. So they're used to the scale. Yeah, but row crop farmers are used to getting stable genetics. Understood. And and the the agronomist, my friend, the agronomist who was the grower on the on the 200 acres, all these things were in our mind. We'd we were curious what we had because we knew that there wasn't enough time to have, you know, stable, high CBD genetics. So we were working with that variability. And like I said, we have five phenos and one of them was, was testing a slightly hot, you know, 0.4.5, one of the five phenos. So let me get this right. You had one variety, but that one variety or cultivar rendered you five different phenotypes. Correct. So, okay. Weren't you guys like- That's fairly common. I know, but like I said, on 186 acres, weren't you guys pissed beyond belief? <laughs> we were mostly pissed when they sickle cut it down. It, you got to imagine it's, it was fantastic to see as far as you could see. It took me five minutes to drive the field. I know, but this is the one thing about it. Could you now imagine if it didn't got sickle cutted, you'd have had to gone in that field five different times if you wanted to pick your plants at maturity. We were just, it was all going to be biomass. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was all sold as biomass for Ford. I sold it for Ford. I had it all sold. That was the heartbreaking point part. I did, you know, we all did our job and they came in and finagled their claims about the legality of it. Uh, unfortunately, the landowner is a really good guy, a uh, Christian guy and the, the publicity of it, calling it marijuana really got him down. Three weeks after the bust, we were out there, the owner, the agronomist, myself, sampling things, sent some samples to the coast. The agronomist and I left and the landowner was there by himself and the sheriff came back out and gave him a hard time. Now that day we had gotten re-energized because the plants had been sickle cut, but they cut them like a foot off the ground. So three ah. weeks, later, three <laughs> weeks later, yeah. Yeah, you see where I'm going with this. Like three <laughs> weeks later, the US attorney said, hey, you, you know, the THC has been removed from the field and off the record, you know, you guys do whatever you want with the CBD. So we estimated another 100,000 pounds left in the field that was all frost kissed and swollen. Um, And so I had resold that 100,000 pounds again at the $4 per percentage point of CBD, which we averaged 8%. So that was $32 a pound for biomass, you know, we originally yes. estimated at 500,000 pounds after the sickle cut, 100,000 pounds. Then the landowner was there after we left and did testing and had this 100, we're setting up to sell the 100,000 pounds and, and how to harvest and process that. The sheriff came out, gave the landowner a hard time. He didn't want to go through any more trouble. He got the plow out and plowed under all 200 acres. Damn. So we had so- a double double loss on that one and you still wanted to do this for a living 
And I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a United States Marine, brother. I don't stop. <laughs> Semper Fi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. in, 20, in 2019, the same agronomist and I got a lease on 1,300 acres in Fresno County for him. And so we turned the corner in 2019. And in June, I had my 141 acres and we'd been discussing doing commercial cannabis on it. And he wanted to do it there. And I said, I got other other parties that want to do it. If you want to do it, let's do it. And he said, you know, fuck cannabis. We, we're friends with a guy named Sherbinsky. So Sherbinsky is an awesome guy named Mario Guzman. And he created the gelato, the Sunset Sherbert. He's one of the original guys that created Girl Scout Cookie. Uh, you know, the Baccio, the Acai. Uh, he's a, a, an amazing breeder for cannabis, very successful, and has created some of the m- most popular genetics in the world. At that time, though, you know, we've been friends with him and helping, you know, along the way the past almost a decade. And, um, and so a few years back, 2019, the agronomist said, man, have you seen Sherbinsky's flower? It's selling for only $14 an eighth in the club. And this is a branded jar in a box, licensed cannabis selling for $14 an eighth. And so we're real keen on the math. And, you know, we're like, fuck that. It's not worth it. And he's like, let's do hemp. So we went and did the 1300 acres. We were caught up in a lot of the hype that was going. It was so much money, so much hype in California. Like in May, they dropped the plan. So in June, it was, it was going bananas. And so I thought, well, you, you sure you want to jump into this? And I'm like, okay. So I decided to do this 1300 acres with him and brought Beth on board. And we started doing like a compliance check on all hemp genetics available in the world. So what we've, you know, fairly quickly found out was a number of things. Most of the genetics were, you know, fiber. They were not high CBD. So we were looking for high CBD for biomass. That is what started uncovering what had happened in response to the 2014 farm bill. You had all the breeders in Colorado and Oregon making these genetics, really only concerned about Delta 9 content for compliance. So they would always claim that their genetics were compliant. But at the time, we only found uh, 14 genetics in the world that had total THC compliant documents that were able to get registered by an ag commissioner in California, because California in 2019 was already total THC. And that was before there was any talk about it for the most part nationwide. So the compliance conversation in 2019 was ridiculous. Nobody understood total THC. Nobody was looking at total uh, THCA. And to get the chain of custody back to somebody that owned the genetic and could prove that it was theirs under a registration with the right total THC content was, was gnarly. And most of them, you know, they were larfy in structure. They didn't have the good nose and they'd had a low ratio. So we started seeing these ratios of 20 to one, 25 to one, and we found Hempris uh, three. Could you explain the ratio for people who who may not understand the ratio? So uh, if you're growing biomass at scale, it becomes fairly mathematical, right? If you're gonna grow an acre and you're gonna get X amount of yield, if you're looking at different genetics and one yields the same as another, then what's the difference in value, the, it's going to be the CBD content. So if you're stuck with a 0.3 threshold, then a 20 to one cultivar is going to have produce two thirds of the CBD or money as a 30 to one cultivar. Thank you. So what we found with Hempress 3 was that it had a very high ratio. It was bred by someone that's respected in cannabis. His name's Adam Dunn. He's actually got a big podcast. And uh, Adam Dunn is a cannabis breeder from Colorado that spent a lot of time in Amsterdam and has bred a lot of cannabis genetics. He had found a 59 to one ratio plant out of this Hempress 3. And that's part of what caught our attention. Now we haven't produced that high of a ratio since, but we have done extensive, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lab tests. And, uh, and we find an average of over 29 to one in the genetic of Hempress 3. For the 1300 acres, we were searching for genetics and we were contemplating going very big and had lots of investors ready to go. And I was very fortunate to have a conversation with a gentleman named Craig Caprillion. And Craig Caprillion's a Central Valley farmer uh, from the Fresno area that's now 
probably semi-retired, but he's he's kind of a silent partner in a cannabis company called Raw Gardens. Raw Gardens did 660 million in 2019, I believe. Craig was interested in investing, but very cautious. And and he was really uh, kind of gave me the voice of reason during that time because I had the power to accept a lot of money and buy whatever genetics and fill those fields with biomass. We all know what would have happened if I did that. Um, but I didn't do that because I listened to Craig and he really enlightened me about the race to the bottom and told me, you know, where things were going with the price. Because we'd already seen the price falling off under a dollar a pound stuff was unheard of in 2019. Um, you know, <laughs> it but was coming though. The old, the old wise farmers already knew. And so yeah. I was, I listened and, uh, and we didn't do that. And so we, but we wanted to get the Hempress three and we couldn't get it. We got it approved by the Fresno County Ag Commissioner. Shout out to Rusty and a lot of great ag commissioners out there, by the way. Shout out to all the great ag commissioners because they've been Thank you. very helpful yes. for not only me and my teams, but every, all our customers and all around. I mean, there's been plenty of debacles at the ag commissioners too, but by and large, there's a lot of great people in the ag commissions making this thing happen and very into it and, and very uh, resourceful for the farmers. So we got that approved July 26, 2019, which was like a Thursday, I believe. And so we couldn't order the seeds and get the seeds and pop them by, we had to crack the seeds by August 1st for the very latest planting in the valley there. Yeah. So we weren't, we weren't able to make it. We did 220 uh, frosted lime plants. We, for, we were fortunate to get those from Kaya Jean, who had done a very good job of feminization. Uh, so we didn't go as big as we thought. But what we did do is we ended up, since we couldn't buy the seed for Hempress 3 and grow it that year, uh, Beth and I decided to go a different direction and acquire the genetic. Uh, so we bought the full rights to the Hempress 3 from Adam Dunn's company, CBD Inc., in uh, the summer there, like August of 2019. Since then, we've gone into hemp genetics. It's been fascinating. Yeah, it's come a long way since then, that's for sure. <laughs> Real quick question. Uh, back in my high THC days, I uh, attempted to breed. And I say attempt and breeding is extremely hard. But one of the hardest things that I found about trying to keep a, a line is that internal breeding line and keep the characteristics generation after generation. Your thoughts? Through selfing, um, you can continue it. And not only that, but you can improve it. Uh, well, so you, what, what I'm saying is, though, none of these things are pure, right? If you go back far enough, you're going to find three or four different lines. Some of them are going to be high THC. Some of them are going to be high CBD. And the thing that I've noticed about the genetics is, is that you really do consciously have to work hard about being able to maintain it. The gentleman that I got to know by the name of John Baker, who develops stuff for uh, a company up there who does genetics for seed and some for uh, fiber. And the thing about it is if he didn't go out every year when he was doing his breedings and selectively pick the ones to maintain the characteristics, there uh -huh. would be drift. And you're, how long have you had this seed line, Hempers 3? Since 2019. Are you maintaining your your line by cloning, back crossing, or selectively inbreeding? That's a good question. So what we did is we took the line and self selfed it to make seeds, and we grow these seeds. So when out. you say selfed it, is that cubing where you took a female and then you went and made it release pollen and then backbred it? Correct. Okay. We're kind of getting deeper into genetics, so we're going to have to explain some of this as we go, but what yeah. you did. Okay. So how many times did you, did you take one mother and continually back cross every generation out back to the original mother? No. Uh, what you do is you'll grow out, in, especially if you're doing small breeding, that's one thing. But if you're doing any kind of production, you need quite a few plants. You know, so you'll usually oh, yeah. do like, yeah, that's what I'm saying is you're going to have to breed all your plants that you're going to have to pollinate from that mom. And, and yeah, it's an undertaking. I just wondered. So you so didn't actually cube. When you say cube, you're talking, you're saying you mean self? No. All right. 
when you know brothers Grimm, you familiar with them uh -huh. all right uh, the stuff that came off of the jack hair you know supposedly uh you know the cinderella in order to get that to breed true they feminized the the mom the one that came out and they ended up calling that because they had a couple different things that they came off this one thing what they did was they maintained a mother then they feminized it bred it to there and then the, what they did is that they went four generations of breeding back to the mom. The, so they had an F4 that was all continually backbred to the mom. And so that's why it was called Cindy 99, because by that time, 99% of the genetics originated from the mother. Yes. And so that what you're talking about is not selfing, just more uh, traditional breeding. no. Because what you're doing is you eat each generation that you breed and you make a plant, you then breed it back to the mom. So you're continually taking the seeds that are bred to where each generation gets more and more of the mother's original genetics. Yeah, and that's going down the line from F1, F2, yeah. F3, F4, right? Technically, you're all right. It's an F4, five, F5. So, so we, 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 we acquired, we acquired F5 genetics from Adam Dunn. Ah, that's what I was fishing for. Yes. Yes. And it's and the lineage is Afghan skunk crossed with canatonic crossed with abacus. Ooh. And I like that. And what I really like about it is that Afghan skunk. So I'm taking a different approach to breeding than the traditional breeding. And so what I'm looking at is more of a numbers game. I've got a really good friend. I think I showed you his list when we were last week in Nashville, his list of seeds from all over the world. It was a wish list from heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, his name is Hardy and uh, he's been all over the world uh, you know, for decades. And uh, he was very instrumental in breeding the Varens. Uh, from like under 1% to over 8%, but he's done lots of breeding and he works with lots of genetics. And so I've been consulting with him a lot the past couple of years and he loves what I'm doing. It's different. And so you can um, take all kinds of different genetics and cross them together and try to make new genetics. That's one way to approach it. What I've found is that there's very good things combined in this genetic that Adam Dunn created, Empress 3. And by growing out the seeds, we see the natural variation and we see the different phenos, but even within the phenos, there's different plants. And some of these individual seeds turn into individual plants, which outperform all others in the given production type. So when you have a difference in environmental factors, you have all these epigenetic things going on. Every grower and every grow is different. And so we see this variation all over. And if you're a nose trying to go buy flour, even within one bag, all kinds of genetics, you're going to see different looks and you're going to see different, you're going to have different smells. But as a grower, you're going to see the commercial value come out first. You know, is it vigorous? Is it filling the space right? Is it going to be a yielder? Is it uh, the kind that you want to replicate over and over? But then coming into those grows with the nose and kind of looking for the plants that we'd want to replicate for commercial value and then looking for that bling bling bag appeal structure. So the eyes are like, yeah, that's the Zaza right there. And then smelling it and smelling the money nose and like okay. that smells. So you know, this is the approach I take to selection to find those freaks now, on, a, on, a, on a scale. And then those freaks we can pivot off of through cloning and making. Uh, so if I come to your company, you offer all these genetics? We offer you, the Hempress 3 genetic. It sounds to me almost like you're encouraging people to take your stuff and then grow out a bunch and then find a mom. Well, we, we encourage them to do that with us. You're not allowed to do that without us. Ah, that's we, what you kind of yeah. got to explain here is yes. because, <laughs> because you do know there's no honor in hemp, right? I do know this and people are going to do it anyway. However, they can also catch a case and if they're going to, they can take their consequences however they want. But I'm a big believer in honor. And so there's an agreement you sign when you get the seeds. And if you dishonor that agreement, then good luck. But if you want to play the honorable game, then I, we will help you to Are create you, new, new legal cultivars that you can name that you can grow in your environment that are going to outperform and be adapted to your grow method and your production type. 
have you genetically marked your product? Is that those genetic markers we're, we're, we're looking for, and that's where we want to work with our customers who grow our seeds out to find these freak outstanding plants. We can get the genetic markers from those and go back and DNA test our seed to pull out the special seeds that are going to have those markers. So the more of a genetic marker profile we build, the better we could pull these unicorn seeds out from amidst millions of seeds, you know what I'm saying? So instead of doing a, we did a 5,000 plant pheno hunt and that's a lot of time and work and cost, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, the future is um, being able to do those pheno hunts through the genetic, through the DNA. Um, all right, Jesse, we've been talking for probably over 50 minutes. So this is the part of the program to where you get to, we're going to try to do shameless self-promotion for it. So if people want to get a hold of you, so basically you're looking for partners that will take your genetics, work with you, develop products, and then in turn, you can help sell those products and try to develop long-term relationships with farmers and producers. Well, uh, let me pull a full circle. Uh, if it's a so shameless self-promotion time, but yes, uh, it with is. With Exotic Canopy Solutions and Hempress 3, we've got fully feminized seeds. One thing that I really love about what we offer is that we know what it is. We offer a free eighth of the flower we'll send to farmers that are considering growing it so they can see it and smell it, smoke it, taste it, test it themselves. And the structure and the smell of our genetic is, is tip top and so is the ratio. But, so we're looking for customers that want to buy our seeds, but we also offer a new cultivar development program where, where we will work with the customer to select in their uh, grow something that they can use in the future that we will split the rights with them on. It's not theirs to just take and do whatever they want with, but we can help them turn it into something that is very valuable. That's going to work for their production method long-term because that doesn't exist in the market. So we do want to partner with our customers to help create that. At the same time, I'm here in Texas and getting into direct-to-consumer retail. A couple of years ago, I started selling flour because all of our seed customers had biomass. They were trying to sell a smokable flour and they didn't have any money. So to go sell their flour and liquidate that gave our customers the money they needed to buy our genetics. And I've been doing that the past two years and I've sold many, many, many thousands of pounds of the smokable flour in that process. What I've switched and transitioned into is this direct-to-consumer market. So I'm opening a retail storefront called Reggie and Dro in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, it'll be a flagship kind of prototype franchise of just a flower store from the bottom to the top, from the left to the right, all qualities from the low to the tip top shelf of genetics. And to me, it's like a testing vehicle. I know you're kind of into marketing, uh, Harold. So I uh, I spent over a quarter million dollars on Google pay-per-click ads by the end of 2004. To me, this CBD hemp flower store is kind of like Google pay-per-click ads. I can put the flower in Texas in a jar in people's face where they can see it and smell it, on-site consumption. And I can find out how they vote with their dollars on which look, which smell, which effect they like the most and that's going to steer the direction of our breeding so, going forward so it's got so to be basically you're, so basically match. you're going to get your focus group paid for profit make a big profit on the focus group 100 <laughs> do a lot of education and bring all that information back into steering the direction of breeding and to our customer base you know so uh you know we we so far have been fairly successful at clearing our customers of their flower you know so our our flower sells well it's not sitting around you don't hear about too much hempress sitting around you know it's, uh, it all also depends on how well it's grown so we definitely want to work with the best growers or people that have the passion to become the best growers so how do people get a hold of you you can go to hempress3.com h-e-m-p-r-e-s-s -S, the number three.com and that's a great way to learn about Hempress. Get a hold of me there. You can also go to Reggie and Dro. Brand new website. This is the first time I guess it'd be mentioned in public. Reggieanddro.com. R-E-G-G-I-E-A-N-D-D-R-O. Reggieanddro.com. And that's got links to all my information. So we got a world premiere here? This is a world premiere, Reggie and Dro. Awesome. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Step kind of got shut out of this. Well, but... actually, I'm glad that I didn't have anything to say. Uh, it's best for everybody. <laughs> but uh, this has been great. Uh, of all the guests we've had on this show, uh, Jesse, it's great to have somebody who, as professional as you are, who has a firm grip on both the THC market and the CBD market. I'm hoping we can have you back as a guest real soon to talk more. I'd love to. I, I, I definitely am very in touch with the, the cannabis market. Still had an amazing time in the state of New York, downtown Manhattan, bought legal cannabis out of a club that my friends are a part of. And it's just an amazing time. And uh, I'm really passionate about the plant. There's a lot of hocus pocus going on, but this plant's always done me right. And I, I love sharing it, creating it, enjoying it and uh, learning about it and teaching about it. So I appreciate the time together, guys. All right. Well, I'm going to wind this up. Once again, this has been Full Contact Cannabis, and it's sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown, which we didn't get to mention too much, but we had a really great guest in Jesse. And uh, as always, keep one eye on the market and one eye on the weather. Thank you, Bunch. Thank you, guys. It was great. Thank you, gentlemen. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Howdy, folks. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I just wanted to thank all you people that have been listening to us, downloading, and also heading on over to our sponsor, Tennessee Homegrown, and buying their wonderful products. We can't do it without you guys, and we know that. And we will always listen, and we will always be there for you as far as our products and also information about our products. Tennessee Homegrown, once again, wants to thank all of you wonderful folks for listening to our podcast and buying our products.